Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. By the way, I'm Ron Young. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the ruling elders here at Jacobswell. And uh, I always count it a great privilege uh, to be able to preach um, when, uh, when I'm allowed. And uh, it's great. So, how many of you are football fans? Raise your hand if you're a football fan. Everyone? A lot of people, not, not everyone. That's fine. I won't condemn you for that. Um, big question. Uh, who's your favorite all-time left guard? Hey, I appreciate that. It, it's an interesting thing. If you, if you look at, um, you know, f- the football team, um, Everyone knows the quarterback, everyone knows the running backs, they know receivers, they know defensive people because they make tackles, their names are announced. Very few people know anyone on the offensive line except if you have like someone like David Bakhtiari and, and you get frustrated because he's injured yet again. Um, you know, but he's the left tackle and everyone knows the left tackle is probably the most important. If you have right-handed quarterbacks, left tackle is probably the most important offensive lineman. Um, if you have a right-handed quarterback, the second most important person is probably your right guard because you will run the ball to the right side more than the left if you have a right-handed quarterback. I don't know if you knew that. Um, after that, you'd probably have to, somewhere the center or the right tackle, the right tackle has to prevent, the, they have to be by themselves pass blocking. It's a very important thing. Again, you're, you're running to the right more often than the left. And then there's the lowly, Left guard that no one knows about. Guess what position I played in high school? I was left guard. Now, I like to tell, say that it's because I was the smallest guy on my offensive line. I was also the fastest. And I was the second strongest, so that was good, too. I liked to work out a lot. But, um, but I played left guard. No one, no one would know that I played football because I'm a left guard. And all that changed one day. One day, my senior year, we're, uh, we're playing this game against, I think it was Grace Davis, and the, the guy who, on punt team, because we, we had a large school, um, about 2,500 students, and we had a huge football team. We were a powerhouse in California for large schools. And so when there were special teams, when we were punting uh, or punt return, the starters would leave, and then the backups, the, the the punt team would come in. Well, during that game, the 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 left guard on the punt team got hurt, and so I'm going to be on punt team. I had practiced it exactly zero times. The off the the special teams coordinator kind of told me what I'm supposed to do, and my very first punt uh, return, uh, the guys making a dash onto the sidelines. I'm 
following up, and he made a move and ran right into me. Like I would say I tackled him, but the reality is he ran into me, and I tackled him. And over the loudspeaker, tackle 79, Ron Young. And I was like, I had never heard that in my life. It was eerie, nor did I ever hear my name from a loudspeaker the rest of my college or uh, high school and college career, except that game, that same game, later on, another punt, a guy makes a, a break for it and comes right into my area, and this time, I actually did tackle him, and I hear it again, tackle, 79, Ron Young, bizarre. I get off the field, normal game, everything was fine, nothing different at all, at all except that I made two tackles and my name was announced over the loud. I, I come to school on Monday morning. Hey, Ron, good game. Ron, good game. The teachers are talking to me about the game. They've never asked me about the game in my life. Well, what happened? Well, two things. One is my name was announced. And so people go, oh, I guess, I guess Ron does play football at our school. And then the second one is, is that um, my, one of my good friends, Brad Smith, his dad, Ira Smith was the radio announcer, because um, our games were always on the radio. He was the radio announcer, and evidently, when I made the second tackle on special teams, and you know, there's this shift of game, he started saying something about, oh, that's the second call from you know, Ron Young, and he's turned out to be quite some guard for the vintage crushers, and, and then he said something like he'd make a great prospect at a Division II or Division III team, and, and so he went on and talked about me on the radio, and so from then on, I was treated differently. It was weird. It was noticeable that people knew me because of the radio and because of being announced. That's, it was just weird. So there's something um, about a def- kind of this defining moment. I, there's n- I was the same guy Friday night as I was Monday morning. But Friday, no one knew me. Monday, everyone knew me and wanted to talk to me about stuff. It was just crazy. Today's scripture, there's this, uh, this is about an elevation of Joshua. But it's not because of anything that he did. It's because God was going to choose through this uh, miraculous uh, instance of crossing the Jordan River that, that he was going to exalt Joshua. And it's so that, you know, they're used to following Moses. Moses is no longer with them. Now it's Joshua. And of course, if you've ever been in any organization, any organization at all where there's a change of leadership, no matter how proper and well it's gone, there's always, yeah, the last guy did it different. Or, you know, it might have been, well, maybe God should have chose Caleb instead of, you know, there's all these things. So God is going to elevate Joshua. So before we get into it, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word to us. We thank you, God, for the events that happened um, between Shidem and Gilgal. You've commanded us to remember these things, and we want to remember them. We want to remember them for the purposes that you've chosen for us to remember them, that we might become the people of God, the people that you want us to be. So Lord, be with us. I pray, God, that you would uh, open up our hearts and our minds to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as way of background, 
we're going to look at the arc of the story, arc with the sea. You know, every story has a beginning, kind of has an end, and there's like kind of this thing that happens. And, and for that, we're going to look at Micah chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Um, I'll read it to you. I don't have the number on the bulletin, but it kind of goes, oh, it's up there. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what uh, Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shidem to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So, so here we have, hundreds of years later, and the, the events of Shidem to Gilgal is still something that God wants his people to remember. In fact, there's uh, at least three different psalms that talk about even the crossing of the Jordan River. It's an, it's an important thing. So the arc of the story goes like this. It, it's, uh, he brought, brought, brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So from Egypt to the wilderness, there's a slide there. Yeah, look at that. You have uh, this order that happens. Um, God wants to deliver them from Egypt out of the hand of slavery, and so God goes at war with the gods of Egypt, and these are done by the plagues. All the plagues that God does is kind of showing the Egyptians and the Hebrews that they're not, those gods aren't the gods, he's the God. And then it culminates on that 10th plague with the Passover. So they have the Passover, they sacrifice the Passover lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost, they eat the meal, and they do it with shoes on because they're going to leave Egypt. The death angel passes over them because they have the blood. Firstborn of all the Egyptians uh, die. And then they're released. And so where do they go next? Well, they go to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea and they pass through. Okay? So Egypt to wilderness. The next phase really is the wilderness uh, to Shinem. So they wander around the um, wander around uh, the wilderness because um, we preached about this. Uh, Dan preached about this not too long ago. They refused to go into the promised land. They were afraid, right? There's walled cities, fortified cities, giants in there. They didn't want to go. Uh, only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, "Yeah, let's do it," but they don't. So God makes them wander in the wilderness for that whole generation. Those who were 20 years and older, they were going to pass away in the desert with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Um, and, and it was going to be that next generation then that would enter the promised land. So during that wilderness time, you see two main things. There's testing and preparation. Um, we remember the testing because the Bible records primarily their failings in the desert, right? Lots of events happen in the desert, but the ones that God recorded for us, for us to know and to learn from are their failings, which includes um, the instance with uh, um, Balak and uh, telling Balaam to curse the people. Dan talked about this last week, a couple weeks ago. I don't remember. But anyways, the, the, he's supposed to, he wants them to curse the Israelites, and every time he does it, he ends up blessing the Israelites. And so what, he, what Balaam says to the king Balak is, um, get him to... Get him to um, sleep around with foreign women and they'll end up worshiping their idols and it worked. And then God had to send a plague to stop it and, uh, and that's the, one of the warnings here in the wilderness. 
There was testings. Sometimes they, a lot of times they failed. We hear about that. But there's also different preparations, which I will talk about towards the end of the sermon. And then uh, lastly, this big thing, a transfer of power or of authority from Moses to Joshua, which leads us now to Shidem to Gilgal. And what you're going to see is it's a reverse order of them coming out of Egypt. Right? Coming out of Egypt, it was God at war with the gods, Passover, crossing. And now at the end of the story arc, you're going to see the crossing of Jordan, the Passover, and then the conquest of the land, war. Kind of a neat package there, isn't it? I think it's because God likes good stories. He likes nice little packages, this, this chiasm, right? So today we're going to talk about this part that goes from, uh, from Shidem to Gilgal, and it's the crossing of the Jordan. I think next week, uh, Pastor Dan or someone will be, you? Some, some guy who's going to preach on the, the Passover. So let's, let's now uh, look at the arc of the story, and now I have it with a K, and we'll begin to read from Joshua chapter 3. So turn with me in your, your Bibles. It's page uh, 179 of the Red Bible. And I'm going to do, two, we're doing two whole chapters, and I'm going to do a chunk, and then we'll talk about it, and then another chunk, and we'll talk about another chunk. Okay. So here's the word of the Lord. Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet... There shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way that you should go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So I have a picture of the ark. Um, it's an artist rendition, and I think what I did was I intentionally found the, the Ark of the Covenant from the, uh, uh, the movie, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't do the movie. I'll find a, some bibli- biblical ar- archaeology, and I found that, and I pasted it to put it on my, my slides. And then I realized, I think that's the same picture. But this is a rendition of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. You have the two cherubim with their wings folded, and that top part is in Greek the hilasterion, which or mercy seat. So, in the worship of of uh, Israel is in the tabernacle, which is like a a tent that has a, a holy place which the priests can go in, wash the sac, you know, and and do sacrifices. The blood then uh, on the Day of Atonement goes into the Holy of Holies, it's which where the Ark of the Covenant rests, and they sprinkle the blood on the top of that to atone for the sins of Israel. Pretty cool. It is also the place where Moses would go, and that's where God would speak to him. It, it represents the presence of God, 
And wherever the ark went, the pillar of cloud the, 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 and the pillar of fire to lead them throughout the wilderness would be there. Inside the ark, are, uh, there's the Ten Commandments were placed in there to represent the word of God. You have uh, Aaron's rod. If you remember, one of the miracles was that his rod, his, the stick that he's been carrying around, all of a sudden it budded with flowers. Aaron's rod was put in there to talk about the power of God. And then you also have a jar of manna in there um, that, that came daily, and they put some manna, and it was preserved, and they put it in the, and it represents the provisions of God. So this, this ark was unique. Um, you... Most people remember it, besides the movie, um, is that many years later um, in, uh, in the book of, uh, I think it's in 1 Samuel, uh, they're carrying the ark on a cart instead of carried by Levites, and it starts to stumble, and a, and a guy reached out to stabilize it, and God zapped him dead. Remember that? Because no one was supposed to touch it except for the priests. All right? It's It's, it's holy. It re- it's, it's the pres- it represents and is the presence of God. This is a, it's an important thing to, to grasp, that, that God's presence is there, and it's a sign of his presence, but that sign is of a reality. It's of a reality. It's truly God. It's not like if I said, um, if I took a pen and I said, <clears throat> Uh, this is going to represent the defensive tackle that I had to block in high school or, you know, whatever. And then I, you know, and you can say, well, that's the sign of that defensive tackle. Yeah, big deal. It has nothing to do with the reality of that offensive tackle or defensive tackle. Does that make sense? The sign has nothing to do with the reality of it. The ark, though, is the sign of God's presence, but the sign has reality to it. So if you touch it, something happens. You die. When the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the top, something happened. You were forgiven. Just clear? Because I'm going to talk about signs and reality in a little bit later. So the Ark of the Covenant is a big, big, big deal. It's God, or the sign of him, but it's God. And, and the ark is going to make the way through the Jordan River, and the people are going to follow the ark from a distance. Why from a distance? Well, you don't want anyone to touch it. It's a good thing. It's holy. It's going to be, there's not going to be any doubt in anyone's mind of why they're able to cross the Jordan River. We find out the Jordan River, it's the spring. It's the the 10th day of the first month of the year, and and uh, the banks are overflowed because it's the springtime, and the the snow up north on uh, on the mountains have have melted, and, and it's this very, very wide and torrential river, and the ark is going to, it's that presence that's going to stop the flow of the river. It's not a bunch of people making a dam. There's, there's not going to be any mistake. It's not the power of Joshua 
that's doing it. It's God. Okay? Next slide. Let's look at the promises of God, okay? I'm going to keep reading from 7 to 13. The word of the Lord. The Lord says to jo- said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will drive, uh, he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth of all the earth, is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now before, now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Okay, so in this we get the idea of what God is promising He's promising three, four main things. One is, is that the Lord is going to exalt Joshua. We, we brought that up at, at the beginning. This is big, big thing. Joshua is the leader. God has declared he's the leader. This is going to show by him commanding the, the ark or the, the Levites, the priests with the ark, it's going to show to all of them he's the guy. He's the guy. Second, the promises that, that God gives to, is to Joshua is that he will be with him, even as he was with Moses. Moses, that's big sandals to fill. Big sandals to fill. Imagine you're that guy. I, I know it's another football reference. The Jets, right? The Jets bring Aaron Rodgers. He's going to be the savior of New York City, and he's going to go to the Super Bowl and all the hype and everything like that. This is, this is Aaron Rodgers. He gets hurt. All right, Zach, get in there. Ay ay ay. Imagine you're him. That's nothing compared to being with Joshua. It's Moses. Moses, Moses was in the presence of God on the mountain and took the, received the Ten Commandments. Moses saw the train of God's kind of backside, and, and it was so glorious it transfigured his face, that his face was glowing. Has anyone, any other human being gotten that close to God? Well, not until Jesus walked the earth. But, all right, Josh, you're up. You're, you're in now. Moses is gone, you're the next guy. That's some heavy stuff. God promises he'll exalt him, and he says, look, I'm going to be with you, even as I was with Moses. Moses was nothing special on his own. The reason why Moses' sandals were just big to fill is because of how God used him. 
God was with Moses in a particular way for a particular purpose. And Joshua is now going to be that. He is going to lead his people. Now, now get this. God is going to command, have Joshua do something that Moses was unable to do. Moses was not able to bring his people into the promised land. Joshua was going to do that. The promise is, I'll be with you. Folks, you might know this already, but it probably bears for me to remind us all or to share this. We can't do anything without God. Anything that we do that is good, you either just got super lucky, I'm just kidding, God had arranged it all beforehand without you even knowing you were doing something good, or it's through the power of God. Your salvation isn't from you, it's from God. There's nothing that you can do to earn a, stand, a stance before God. We're all corrupt, we're all evil, we're all unworthy. Any one of us, if we touched the Ark of the Covenant, would be dead. Any one of us trying to stand before a holy God would die. It's only if God is with us that we can stand. It's only if God is with us that we can do good. It's only if God is with us that we can be saved. The next promise is the Lord would be among his people. That he would be among the people. And for the people, man, that sounds great. That God will be among us. And then finally, the promise is that the Lord is going to drive out all the other people. Does this mean that they're not going to have to go to war? No. They're all going to have to bear arms. They're going to have to fight. Sometimes the fighting is by marching around and blowing trumpets. Other times, which will come up pretty soon with Jericho. Other times it's with bearing the sword, but they have to fight. But their hope is not in their ability, their skill with their sword. Their hope is, is that God has made a promise and that God is the one that's going to drive them out. It's, it's through God and God alone. Okay. I really tried hard to make a bunch of peas. So I got the presence of God, the promise of God, the purposes of God. Okay, so... Why is he doing this? Why, why is this, uh, these promises, why this action? And uh, let's read from uh, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 10. The word of the Lord. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people... As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, <clears throat> now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and uh, those flowing downward toward the sea of the 
uh, Araba, that is the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel were passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in a place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, where, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with, with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. And the, for the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. Whew, that was a lot. The purposes of God, we find three main purposes in here. One is, um, is to just to close one part of the story and begin the next. Okay? There, remember, well, there's war, there was the crossing of the Red Sea, there's the wandering. They're trying to get into the promised land. They're going to cross over and get to the promised land. Yay! And there in the promised land, they're going to have Passover and then begin the conquest. Right? So we got to get from the wilderness into um, Israel. And then second is to mark the event so as to remember his acts and his promises. Right? So he makes promises, then he does this act to show them that he is serious about this, that it's, these promises are true. And then not only that, he says, you guys are forgetful people because human beings are forgetful people. We're forgetful people. And he says, let's put up some monuments. So there's two of them. There's one in the Jordan River, and there's going to be one up in Gilgal where they camped that night. Right? A memorial. So from now on, whenever you're strolling by and your kids go, what are those big pile of stones? They can tell the story. God promised that he'd be among us. How do I know? Look. See that pile of stones? This is what God promised us. This is what he did. Isn't that great? Stones to remind them. In the water and in the, on the land. I guess the big thing in the water is like, how do you make a pile of stones in a river that's flowing? Unless it got dried up at one point. 
right? You might, the kids might go, what's this pile of stones? That's nothing. Come, I want to show you this one now over here in the Jordan River. It's very cool. God did this. It's, it, it's a, it shows as a memorial to the people of God's promise, his presence, right? His purposes, he's for you, he's with you. It's, it's just amazing. The last one is, and this is a big one, is to point us to Jesus. I have a map. And, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, I have Pastor Dan's laser pointer. It's dangerous. Isn't that cool? I got, wait, I did it wrong. There it is. Dan does it from the hip. He's, he, I've seen him do it from the hip. That's pretty cool. All right. So here we have, here we have uh, Shidem right here. And, um, and the people are going to come down into, you know, this where he split it. And then he's going to go up. And the question there is Gilgal. Gilgal means like round or circle. And the, we're not sure, scholars aren't sure, if this is the, a city called Gilgal or if it's just the camped in a circle up on the plain. So we're not, there's not a lot of certainty about where this Gilgal is. That's why there's the question mark. Um, it's from Shidem to the, this is about 12 miles from here, is about eight miles. And they said it's safe from Gilgal to Jericho. It's probably another, um, because see, there's that question mark. We don't know. But they estimate it's probably another eight miles or so away. Um, okay, so you have this, this right here where you have Joshua is going to be exalted. You had Moses, but now Joshua's the guy and he's exalted. He's going to do something greater than Moses. Moses could not get them in the promised land. Joshua is. Hundreds of years later, there's a prophet in Israel named Elijah, and he has his right-hand man, Elisha. They come down here, and they cross over this way. Guess what Elijah does? He touches his mantle on the Jordan River, and the river dries up, and they walk through. And they get over to this side, and Elijah says, uh, yeah, I got to go now. And, Eli and Elisha is going to get the mantle of Elijah. He's going to be the guy. He's going to be the prophet. And what Elisha gets is a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And that takes place. Elijah goes up into heaven in a fiery chariot. Elisha then comes back this way. He touches the mantle on the Jordan River, it parts, and he walks through, all right? So you have Moses to Joshua, now you over here, you have Elijah to Elisha, okay? Jesus starts his ministry by coming down here, because guess who's baptizing in the Jordan River? Elijah is, I'm sorry. John the Baptist is, who is the Elijah who is foretold, right? According to the New Testament, according to Jesus, Elijah is the one with the spirit, uh, or John the Baptist is the one with the spirit of Elijah, the one who's foretold that the Messiah was going to come, but first uh, there's uh, going to be uh, uh, someone who would prepare the way in the wilderness, and that's John the Baptist. So Jesus comes, and he's baptized by John, and then goes and does his earthly ministry 
Now, it's going to get exciting. Ready? Jesus comes way up in the north, way up over here, Mount Hermon. Right across from Mount Hermon is um, one of the places, one of the most pagan, uh, they, they even call it like the gate to hell. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's uh, pagan worship, the... Um, before the Romans were even there, even the Romans there worship and, and sacrifice children and, and all that. But, but at one point, he's over here at Mount Hermon and says uh, to his disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, you're the Christ, the Holy One of God. That's what Peter says. And Jesus says, yeah, that's, that's right. And this was given to you by the Father, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he shortly takes uh, Peter, James, and John up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, and listen to what God says. Moses and Elijah show up at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then a cloud comes over. Sounds familiar. A cloud on a mountain, yeah. And a voice comes, and the voice says, the, um, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Ready? Listen to him. Years earlier, God says through Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for a, pro a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is him that you shall listen. And then God says with, remember Moses is there, Moses to Joshua. Elijah's there, Elijah to Elisha. And now Jesus is there and God says, listen to him. Jesus is exalted, and he comes down to die. From that moment on, he says to his, his uh, disciples, I gotta go to Jerusalem to die. I gotta go to Jerusalem to die. And so Jesus doesn't come back down like this. He comes over this side of the Jordan River on purpose. He crosses the Jordan right to Jericho. Why right to Jericho? because that's the way Joshua came in to conquer. What we understand by this is Jesus has crossed the Jordan to Jericho and he is there to fight and to, con to conquer um, Satan, which he goes up to Jerusalem to die. When did he die? Oh yeah, Passover. Did you realize that in the early on it says it was the 10th 10th day of the first month. You know what the 10th day of the first month is? It's the day in which the people of Israel were to take a lamb that they're gonna sacrifice for the Passover and they isolate it from the other sheep for four days and then there's Passover. They're going to have Passover here at Gilgal on the 14th of that month. So four days after the crossing. Which means... They're crossing the Jordan River, ready? Five days short of 40 years. They've been in the wilderness for f almost 40 years, five days short of it. They'll have Passover on the 14th. God's good. This is all pointing to Jesus, folks. We recognize what Jesus is doing because of the stories. 
God tells everyone, remember from Shittim to Gilgal. Remember, remember. Let's put up memorial stones so everyone will remember. The people crossing on dry land, the exaltation of Joshua. It went from Moses to Joshua. Elijah chooses this place. To, well, God chooses it for Elijah for the same transference of, of authority. Why? So it'll all point to Jesus. The Elijah to come was John the Baptist, and he says, Behold the Son or the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then over and over he says, I must become less and he greater. It all points us to Jesus, who became the Passover Lamb for our sake, so that we might be redeemed too. That we will not be slaves to sin, but to be free. That we can be a people in whom God is not only among, but he's in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. God does not leave us without memorials, right? Even as the crossing of the Red Sea, even as the passing of the Jordan River reminds us of baptism, we understand that this is the sign. It's not, not circumcision like in the covenant of Sinai, in the new covenant, we're baptized. And there's a reality behind it. God does something. We're included into his covenant, not because of the things that we've done. This is why we baptize infants. It's, it's, it's like circumcision. That infant has done nothing to deserve anything. They're just a baby. And they're included into that covenant because God is the one that does the work. God is the one who does it. I remember uh, in studying in church history about how sometimes Martin Luther would get so fr frustrated and so fed up of his, his own sin, his own, you know, heaps falling, and, and he would go, but I'm baptized. He didn't say, um, you know, I made a decision one day. He didn't say, you know, but I, I think I'm a pretty good person. He didn't say, but look at all the good things I've done in my life. Satan, get away from me. Like, I'm sure that I'm a Christian because I feel this way. No, he didn't feel that way. He felt lousy. He felt convicted by sin. He felt attacked by the devil. He felt tempted. And his thing was, but I've been baptized. He's saying, but God has done this thing. I'm his, and he is faithful. The whole story of the wandering in the wilderness is to tell us, folks, you guys are sinners. I'm a sinner. We can do nothing good, but God is the one who is faithful, not you. God is the one who is faithful. God is the one who is faithful. God has saved you. God has made you right with him. God will keep his promises to you. And if you are struggling, if you are um, going like, how can he put up with me? I, I keep failing over and over again. No matter how hard I try, I keep failing. But you know what? It's not you. It's God. It's his promise. It's his promise. Your son his daughter, and he'll be faithful to you. 
So we're reminded of this. Every week we come to another sign. Sign of his death, his body given for us, his blood shed for us, and it's freely given to us. We never say, hey, come up here if you're perfect. We don't say, hey, if you're good enough, come and receive this treat. No, we're sinners. Come if you believe and have been baptized. This is for you, for the forgiveness of sin. It's for you. God is faithful, even when we're not. Final thing. Ooh, getting there. Final thing. The people of God. I want you to notice this one thing as we, I'll read quickly. I only have a few verses left here. All right. Um, Starting in verse 11, and when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of the Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of their priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until he passed over until we passed over, so that the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever, forever. The people of God, this is the, the next one. The people, oh, the people of God go from slave to free, right? They were slaves in Egypt. They were free in the wilderness wandering around. And now... They are going into the promised land, and you got 40,000 trained for war from the two and a half tribes. In numbers, they did a census, like who are the military-aged people who can fight? There are 600, over 600,000 um, men who were able to fight. And so amongst the two and a half tribes, there should have been around 100,000 able to do that. And, but what we have here is we understand that, that Joshua took 40,000 of them to go fight in the promised land. The others were, men were probably left there to take care of and defend their families and children and stuff. But, but I want you to just think about this for a moment. How does a generation of slaves end up with children who are armed for war? How does that happen? How does this fearful group of former slaves 
who said no to going into the promised land, wander around the desert for 40 years, dying off, and now their children are ready to go fight. It's because they believed God. And yeah, most of the time when we read in Scripture about the wilderness wanderings, it's warnings to us, like, don't do these things. Don't, don't fall into temptation like they did. They did fall into temptation, temptation. They grumbled. They complained. They did that. But there's also a part of this you have to understand is that the people believed God and that their children were going to receive the promised land even if they're not going to see it. They raised their children to inhabit that land that they don't have yet. They trained their children to be ready to go when God tells them to. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a big question for us, right? This is the arc of our story. I don't really have anything on that one. It's just this. The arc of our own story is this. Last 40 years, you can look at the church in America and we've been pathetic as a whole. I think I'm being objective when I say that. Am I? Right? The church of Jesus Christ used to have the makers and shakers of our world. Not just theologians, politicians, state craftsmen, artisans, the whole works. What happened to us? What happened to us in the last 40 years? It's pathetic. The church keeps sliding off into heresy, sliding off into disbelief. We're not training our children in a way that, like, Jesus said, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Now go, make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe all that I commanded. Right? Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. When did we stop believing that we should do what Jesus taught us? When did we stop believing that God is with us? When did we stop giving up on the things that God has purposed for us as his people? We give our kids over to other people to be trained. We, we, we start, um, we pursue personal police and affluence. I remember as a youth pastor, I was, it drove me nuts when their kids were, they weren't followers of Jesus Christ. They, they were screwing off. They weren't doing anything. The parents didn't care. They were happy that they can get into college. That was their thing, because, okay, if they go to college, they can make a good living. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares if they're going to hell? Who cares? The church of Jesus Christ has not been faithful. What do we do then? Well, I think just like every other generation of unfaithful Christians, we just repent and start again. Like, you're not all of a sudden cast off because you've blown it. Start where you're at. That's what, the, that's what the generation in the desert did. I'm not going to the promised land, but I know what God's promises are for me and for my children. I'm not going to make it, but my children will. I'm going to train them. What's it going to be like for the next 40 years? 
So here's the, here's the hard part. I know that most of us think probably that in the st- arc of the story, we're in the wilderness and then Jesus is going to come back and we're going to be in the promised land. That's a false narrative. The narrative is, is that Jesus has come and we're now to disciple the nations. The church is supposed to be in the conquering phase. Do you believe that? Here's what I would ask you to do. Don't trust your eyes about where the church has been going for the last 40 years or where society has been going the last 40 years. Trust what Jesus says. Trust what the Gospels tell us. And lo, he'll be with you. Will there be times of failure? Yeah. Will there be times of suffering? Yeah. But remember, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And then it withers away. No. It grows to be the biggest thing in the garden. Remember, the kingdom of God is like that stone in Daniel that comes and it topples all the kingdoms of the world and grows to be the mountain that covers everything. Do you believe that? pray you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace. It is only by God's grace that we have any hope at all. But God, I I pray that even as you were faithful to your word, the people in the desert, even if we might not see a wonderful great land in our lifetime. We pray that our children, our children's children would. I pray, God, that we would not give up in what you've taught us to do, to teach, to evangelize, to disciple. We thank you, God, for these signs that have a reality behind them. As we take and eat of the bread and the cup, we know, Lord, that it is a sign of your body and of your blood. And these things are for our forgiveness and for the spiritual union we have with Christ who isn't just among us, but in us. I pray, God, that we would believe. In Jesus' name, amen.